Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton and joining me as always is my friend, my cohort, my colleague, Mr. Mark Daly. Sir, how are you, my friend? All things considered, doing pretty good. Uh, considering both of us have been fighting colds for like the last, what, two weeks now? It seems like we just can't kick this thing. But hey, you know what? It's uh, Thursday night, going on into Friday so uh, I at least have like that uh, that weekend vibe that, um, you know, at least uh, I can kick my, my feet up and relax for a couple of days. So that's good. That's good. I totally agree. And I, I, I haven't been able to shake this now for weeks. And I, I apologize to everyone that's kind of been listening at home and has heard me sniffle and snort and <laughs> cough a little bit. I promise you, I do my best to scrub that out in post-production. I love saying that. I sound so technical in post-production. It, some of it squeezes through, so I apologize. That said, I think both of us would be a little bit remiss if we didn't address the global news story that sure. is dominating headlines across the world right now, and that is the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the global fallout as a result of that. And I think, you know, you and I are lucky, my friend. We get to come on the show once, twice a week, depending on the time of year, yep. and we get to talk about something fun. We get to talk about fantasy. We get to talk about entertainment. And unfortunately, I think there are times when we have to break away from that a little bit and just address the fact that there is a global catastrophe happening as we speak in a country that certainly maybe wasn't necessarily expecting the the breadth of this invasion, the breadth of the devastation. Mm -hmm. And I think we would be absolutely disingenuous if we didn't address it. And I think just in the spirit sure. of being human, and this is something I think you and I both take great pride in, is that we come on the show and we like to think as humans and we like to be respectful and we like to be courteous. I think ultimately we know that what we're talking about is fun, it's entertainment, it's fantasy. And a single Ukrainian life is worth infinitely more than the entire world of Formula One, that human beings and human life comes first. And 100%. I think it's, yeah. it's challenging because- it's a global situation that will likely impact all of us in some capacity, financially, inflation, gas prices, fuel prices. We'll all know somebody that has family in the Ukraine or that's been tied up into this. But I think it would be disingenuous if we didn't address this this subject matter off the top. And then the unfortunate reality in, in addition to that is the world of Formula One actually intersects in some ways with what we're seeing happen unravel in, in the Ukraine and with mm -hmm. Russia right now. And that being kind of a two-pronged piece, which is one, Formula One is currently still scheduled to race in Russia in late September. And, and furthermore, there is a heavily Russian-backed team on the grid with a Russian pay driver in, in Nikita Mazepan. So over the course of the last 48 hours, as this invasion got underway, the the sentiment online overwhelmingly in the Formula One community is that, hey, look, the FIA, Formula One, they need to cancel that race in Russia. And furthermore, if, if the sanctions themselves don't bite into the fact that there's a Russian-based 
petrochemical company funding the American Haas Formula One team, should should Formula One and the FIA step in and and cut the ties or sever those ties. So what we've seen over the course of the last couple of days is uh, Stefano Domenicali, uh, CEO, president of the Formula One group, is committing to meet with the team leaders from all of the teams. So the team principals, the executives, they plan to meet tonight to discuss the ongoing situation in Russia. Um, and furthermore, we've now had a couple of drivers, including Sebastian Vettel and Max Verstappen, both speak openly about the fact that if the race does happen, that they will not be competing and that it is not appropriate. And then finally, midway through testing today, the Haas team began to strip the Uracali petrochemical branding from their motorhomes and from the car. And what we know is That's that tomorrow, amazing. which is the third and yeah. final day of, of testing at Barcelona, the Haas team will be running a blank white livery. So I know that's a mouthful, my friend, but I think it's important that you and I pay our respects to what's happening globally. And I don't know if you have any more thoughts you wanted to add to that. I know that was a long preamble. Yeah, sure. You know, I, I mean, I completely 100% agree with everything uh, that you said. I mean, I, I was thinking about it too, when because we had the same uh, discussion earlier tonight in the, uh, the Twitter spaces, right? And it would just seem to me completely off base and completely contrary to what everybody else uh, around the world is doing, you know, imposing economic sanctions on Russia and stuff like that. It'd be completely off base if Formula One decides to go ahead with that, because I mean, it would be a bit of a propaganda coup for the uh, the, the Russian government, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Great it, call. <laughs> excuse me. Um, you know, not to, not to the fact it'd be like that whole discussion of sport washing that we've had on this show a couple of times when we've discussed other other races, but sports washing for a different reason. I mean, let's not forget that this whole situation just didn't happen overnight. They've been uh, building troops and massing equipment and air power on that uh, that that border with the Ukraine for weeks. I mean, this um, this is not something that uh, suddenly happened overnight. So, I, I think that um, you know the it seems appropriate what the international reaction has been so far. Hopefully this thing can be uh, de-escalated uh, before too much longer, before it starts to spiral out of control or, you know, involving, you know, more, more countries in the region. I mean, there, there's a potential for a lot of bad things uh, to happen, but I mean, also let's not forget that uh, Saatchi's on the east side, east coast of the, the, the Black Sea. So, Geographically, it's adjacent. I mean, there's several hundred kilometers, couple hundred, you know, probably even several hundred miles between Ukraine and uh, Sochi. But I mean, just geographically, it is all in a, you know, a, a fairly central area. So uh, I, I have to admit that I'm... I'm encouraged that Haas decided to re remove the um, you know, the Urakali branding from their car so quickly, and it, it just kind of like makes me wonder: a, you know, number one, how long? It, a, number one, <laughs> number one, what's going to happen with the Russian Grand Prix? Are we going to wake up uh, tomorrow here on the West Coast to the news that this Grand Prix is now scratched? They're going to go to Turkey, which seems to have been, um, you know, the 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 immediate. Uh, I guess, uh, air or replacement or the alternative, or I guess it could be any other number of uh, races. So we will see. And then number two, what happens with, uh, with Haas? I mean, uh, th th I thought that was a really good uh, discussion in Twitter uh, spaces uh, the earlier this evening, just that, that whole conundrum now, <laughs> you know, you have this, uh, you know, America's Formula One team basically backed out of the, the personal pocketbook of, uh, you know, a, a Russian oligarch. Who reportedly had uh, you know some FaceTime with uh, Mr. Putin himself earlier today? So 
there there's a, there's a lot going on and um po- you know politically and optically i think it puts uh, formula 1 under the microscope and we're all going to be watching very very closely because this is different than COVID, right? I mean, two years ago, almost exactly, we were sitting here and, uh, I mean, we were both working on different things at the time, but I kept the, the the podcast going. And then after a couple of weeks of taking a hiatus when everything shut down, I thought, well, yeah, sure, Formula One, it's a distraction, but it's a distraction and uh, something that we need right now at the beginning of the pandemic. This is different, though. <laughs> you know, th- this is... You know, this is something that was entirely preventable. And uh, COVID, I think, was different in the fact that although it was a very, very serious situation, I think, by and large, it pulled people together. I mean, this situation is to a certain extent, but to different reasons. I mean, where it's kind of pulling people together is, you know, people condemning, you know, the invasion and whatnot. So it's just, it's a very weighty and a very heavy issue. And I mean... Yeah, it's it's kind of tough to come in here and on a sort of a you know a, a light note, and I mean we're usually pretty upbeat and uh, you know bubbly people. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. kind of hard to do that tonight, right? I mean when there's you know more serious things going on. Yeah, I I completely agree with everything that you said, and we tweeted a couple of days ourselves even before the invasion began that look. Formula One just needs to cancel the Russian Grand Prix. There is there is no shortage of great places that would be happy to host a Formula One Grand Prix. It's not appropriate. I love the term that you use, sport washing. Never would there be a more clear example of that term than this, that, hey, you know what? We, Russia, I, Vladimir Putin, I can go and invade a neighbor with a military offensive. But guess what? I get to host a Formula One Grand Prix. Like yeah. that can't happen. That race has to be canceled. And I'm very, very confident that that Liberty, that Formula One will come forward and do so. And I mean, ultimately, if they don't, my suspicion is that as an American-based entertainment company, Liberty may be forced to because of sanctions that are being placed on oh, the Russian point. government. So great point. I think from yeah. an optics perspective, it would just be really great. And I trust that they will. I think it'd be really great if they get in front of this. And it also helps yep. to create a little bit of separation between Formula One of today, as opposed to the Formula One that was governed by Bernie Eccleston, who was unabashedly a huge fan and advocate for Vladimir Putin and his leadership in that country. But I think both of you and I will breathe a huge sigh of relief when this situation de-escalates. And I pray and I hope and I simply pray every moment of the day that it de-escalates sooner rather than later and as little destruction and as little personal harm and injury and death can come to the people of that country as possible. And ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, Formula One is almost irrelevant. But because this is a Formula One show, we have to talk about how the two of those subjects intersect because they certainly do intersect in this case. And to that earlier point that you made about Turkey, it was reported yesterday that the Formula One site was no longer selling tickets to Sochi, Mm -hmm. but that they had open ticket sales to Turkey, which is very, very interesting. So that could be foreshadowing the fact that Formula One, that Liberty already had a backup plan in anticipation that something like this could happen. So I think the remaining questions now will be, and this isn't something that we can answer today, it's only something we can speculate on, is that if because of sanctions or for any other reason mm-hmm. that Haas is severed ties with Eurocali, what happens to that team? Does that team continue to operate? Do they need to receive emergency funding from Formula One and from the other teams to continue operation throughout the rest of the year? Does Gene Haas decide to sell that team? And obviously we know that Michael on 
Andretti is very, very hungry to enter the world of Formula One. Those are a lot of questions that we probably won't address tonight and things that we could only really speculate on. But I think it was important that from the jump, despite the fact yeah. that we're in, we're an entertainment show, we're here for escapism, we're here for fun. I think it would have been completely disingenuous and a complete disservice to all of our listeners if we didn't at least address this show or this, uh, this situation from the top. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's going to be a, a bit strange because, uh, you know, coming up after our first break here, we're going to sit down with our good friend Bryson Sullivan uh, to talk about the, the the new cars and everything like that. And just for a little bit of context, I mean, we actually had to pre-record this a couple of days ago. And I mean, number one, it's going to be kind of strange because, you know, the 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 atmosphere, you know, the, uh, the vibe and the conversation between the three of us is probably going to be a little bit, you know, it's going to be a little bit lighter, but also... So, you know, we were a little bit sicker and I, I actually, I really felt afterwards, I wasn't really on point in that conversation with Bryson. So it's just, uh, yeah, it, it's just, uh, <laughs> it's, it's going to be strange kind of piecing this one together, but, uh, it is what, uh, what it is, but you know, you made like a really good point that, uh, about the, the fact that maybe they won't be able to, to go and do this just because of the, 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 the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia by all these, uh, Western nations. Right. And, um, I, I just hope that that they do the right thing and the right thing would be to you know to call that race off go go somewhere else and uh, and, and just not have it come back where they're forced in the, the, the situation that well we're going to do it but you know we're you know the situation hopefully by then is better but then they have their arm twisted you know politically <laughs> to not to go and do that so i i'm i'm hopeful i you know if there was the the previous regime was uh was in charge that's maybe a poor choice of word in the considering the the context but if uh you know the previous uh group was uh, still in charge then I think this would be a completely different scenario, and <laughs> I would not at all have been surprised if they uh, Formula One went. But I think under Li or Liberty, I think it's going to be very, very uh, different. I agree. I yeah. agree. Yeah. All right. Well, why don't we? Uh, well, let's. Why don't we just take our uh, first break here, and then uh, we'll uh, go into our conversation with Bryson, and then when we come back uh, after that, we're going to talk about uh, everything we talked about with Bryson. Break that down a little bit, and then uh, just talk about what we've actually seen on the track in uh, Barcelona over the last uh, couple of uh, days. I mean, th this one, honestly, Mark, completely snuck on me. <laughs> I thought the, uh, the the shakedown in Barcelona was still like a couple of weeks away, but uh, couple of weeks away is actually the start of the season which is great anyways time for a brick quick break we will be back in just a moment passion drive and patience the formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive ebay motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance superchargers roof racks exhaust kits LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
Okay, well, guys, welcome back. And joining us once again is a real staple, a real foundation of the F1 community and a really knowledgeable gentleman. And it's a real pleasure to welcome back Mr. Bryson Sullivan at Natural Paradigm on Twitter. Bryson, good afternoon. How are you? Or good morning. I've lost track of time. Anyways, how, how are things, my friends? <laughs> I'm I'm doing fine. How are you guys today? We're good. Thank you very much. And it's great to to reconnect because uh, we, we spoke uh, at length, uh, oh, I guess it was middle of last summer when we were living in a completely different Formula One world in, in, in many different aspects. But we are here specifically today to, to draw upon your knowledge and your expertise on the new uh, cars that uh, have come out in abundance over the past uh, couple of weeks. As we sit down here this morning uh, on a Sunday, on a sort of a, a relaxed uh, time of the week we only have two cars yet to see the uh, the alfa romeo and the 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 alpine but all the big dogs all the big teams and everyone else in between have uh, released their cars so far so there's plenty to talk about and i know uh, you know mark uh, you you and i we've uh, talked about that uh, on the show and also just uh, between us offline uh, outside of the show i mean this it's an exciting time yeah i i would just say you know there are far too many people who have been doing technical F1 things for so long and have such a, a rich history in it. I, I would certainly not call myself an, an expert in any of it. What I would say is that I am a person who has an engineering background and I am an extreme enthusiast of Formula One tech things. And so if I have an opportunity to learn something specific and communicate that in a way that's you know palatable to a general audience, that is what I try to do. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely not an, not an expert. <laughs> I am a person who tries to be informed as much as I can and tries to communicate that with, with everyone else. Um, and I agree, we've seen just about everyone uh, as far as the, the car launches. Technically, we have seen some pictures of the Alfa Romeo already, but the official launch is still uh, ahead of us. Bryson, I, I have to ask this question, and, and maybe you can help set the table a little bit. Obviously, 2021 in so many ways was the end of a Formula One era, and we transitioned into 2022. And because of COVID, the new regulations, they were delayed a year. But this year is remarkable in that the FIA and Formula One are introducing a radical rethinking of what a Formula One car is. Can you put into context just how dramatically different these cars are from 2021? And, and knowing that, what are the most dramatic changes that viewers can expect to see next year? I believe that the regulation changes for 2022 are the most radical changes that Formula One has seen since the 80s. Honestly, when they were forced to go from you know curved underside bodies to flat bodies, flat floors on the cars, um, and I think many people would agree with that. In, in terms of what's really different, the entire premise is you know Formula One cars are the most extreme cars in the world in terms of you know Grand Prix racing cars. They're the fastest machines humans have ever built that can go around a, a Grand Prix racing track, and as a result of that, they're heavily reliant on aerodynamics. However, if you want to improve the racing between cars, you want to minimize the disturbing effect that the car in front has on the car behind, make it a bit easier for the cars to, to race each other. And the way that the theory goes as far as how to accomplish that is to make the cars less reliant on overbody aerodynamics, right? And more reliant on underbody aerodynamics, not only because that produces a, a cleaner wake that's being presented to the car behind, but it also makes the car behind less sensitive to wakes in the first place. And so I think the basic idea, and again, 
it doesn't have to be a radical shift in what the car behind sees in order to be an improvement. But fundamentally, what we're trying to do is allow the cars to have more high-speed grip following each other in high-speed corners. There, there may be some knock-on effects of that at low speed, and that will certainly change the balance of the cars. But fundamentally, what we're trying to do is make it easier for cars to follow each other at high speed. And that's really the, the center of the bullseye for 2022. You know, Bryson, we've seen plenty of comparisons of the, the, the car launches so far, you know, sort of cut and paste jobs of uh, the side view, top view, front view, which really uh, you know, adds an, an interesting perspective uh, to it, uh, you know, regardless of the fact that none of these uh, pictures might be all at the same scale. So it was really difficult. But, you know, you do get a, a, an idea, an indication of some of the different themes, some of the different theories and uh, design routes that the, uh, the different teams have uh, gone with. But uh, out of the, the, the car launch, that uh, we've seen what is the the most uh specific theme or um uh, you know not being an engineer myself not, not really sure which way to put it but what has stood out for you the most in out of the car launches we've seen um so there, there's really two aspects to that right one of the questions is what is a, a design theme that all the teams are sort of grappling with and taking sort of either side of the argument on another question is which team has been the most aggressive in pursuing that right so to the, the first question is, the one question you want to ask yourself is, you know, if we're relying more on the floor to produce downforce, the question is, how much do you want to rely on the floor? And how much do you want to sacrifice perhaps front wing performance in order to produce that? So for example, if you want to get the maximum amount of flow rate underneath your floor, and you want it to have the maximum energy possible, it kind of makes sense to actually back off the front wing a little bit right? Because the mm. front wing is what you see first. And the more aggressively that turns the air upwards, the more turbulent and, and dynamic it can be. It will also lose some of the energy and it'll make it harder to actually go underneath the front of the floor. So you see several teams actually tailoring their front wing design, not so much to generate front downforce, but to maybe back off the wing close to the nose to provide a clean flow path to the front of the floor. And so there's there's a there's a balancing act going on there that different teams find themselves on different sides of, you know, Ferrari, for example, and, and Mercedes, very, very different philosophies as far as that goes. Um, but in terms of which team has the most aggressive and most uh, non-conservative version of uh, the 2022 regulations, as far as their interpretation, it's got to be Ferrari. You know, Ferrari with their you know, sculpted side pods and these really aggressive louvers and their their front wing design that has certain aspects of it that we can certainly look into. They are certainly the ones who have given us the most sort of out of the box thinking in terms of what you could possibly put into the regulations that they were given. That's not to say that other designs aren't innovative in other ways, but from a pure aerodynamics perspective, there are certain aspects of the Ferrari that are are quite interesting. And I think the discussion around each of these cars gives you some kind of indication of how innovative they actually are. I think the most innovative we're talking about with the McLaren tends to be around their front suspension, which you can get into. Um, but people have spent hours upon hours uh, digging into the, the Ferrari and even doing their own CFD simulations to investigate their philosophy. So it's quite a radical concept. Bryson, our listeners at home are probably a little bit surprised to hear me speak so glowingly <laughs> and excitedly about the 2022 cars because I've been I've been very skeptical and I, I think I appreciate the reason why the FIA and Formula One introduced this new formula. They wanted to make uh, 
they wanted to create a world where there could be more competitive balance and there could be more exciting racing, as you just described a couple of minutes ago. But I think I've been excited by what we've seen. I'm curious, though, of the cars that we've seen so far. And obviously, we haven't had a real look at the Alpha Tower. We haven't we really haven't seen the, the Red Bull, except for some ultra low resolution screenshots from Silverstone. But <laughs> of the cars that we've seen so far, has there been a very specific innovation or trait to any of them that has you really intrigued or really excited to see how that translates into uh, driving characteristics once we get to Barcelona? Um, I, I probably would say the Ferrari side pods. Um, there is another thing that we have seen on many of the cars that has to do with the rear diffuser. And it's kind of a cutout in the geometry there that's been affectionately called a mouse trap or a mouse hole <laughs> if you've seen it towards the rear part of the diffuser um it really helps to um you know promote uh the flow being attached in the upper part of the more aggressive part of the diffuser it's quite interesting and i i'm curious to see how each team approaches that um especially in cornering i think it actually might be slightly different for one direction versus another but it's certainly very interesting something that i'm keeping an eye on um but that's that's the first thing that comes to mind for me yeah, there there are plenty of uh, interesting little uh, things here that uh, that they've all put on the different cars that uh, you know I, I look at it and you know when I think of it, somebody myself that has a very high level um, overview and sort of understanding of these things, I can't help um, you know think about you, Bryson, and, and and people that have your your education, your experience in engineering. Did when you see these things, especially like these uh, the side pods on the Ferrari. Can you, do you actually start actually visualizing how, you know, the air is going to flow and how these things work? Because, you know, those side pods on the Ferrari, I think are really, really cool. I mean, even looking, you know, from somebody like me that doesn't have quite the understanding, it just looks to be a very, you know, a, a very, very interesting development and a very wonderfully engineered piece of uh, well, technology, really. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's no field that I'm aware of where hand waving is more prevalent than aerodynamics. <laughs> right? It is it is remarkably easy <laughs> for well-qualified people to speak about something specific about a car that may sound plausible, but may not actually be correct. Yeah. So I'll, I'll preface anything that I say about this by uh, saying that without detailed understanding of the specific flow field characteristics, and what I'm talking about is a, a full safety solution or perhaps even looking at their wind tunnel information, I really can't say specifically what each element precisely does. What we can say is what some of the general trends might be for certain shapes and what some of the benefits might be for that. For, for example, for the Ferrari uh, side pod, what's interesting is that they have the entrance of their of their side pod is sort of as high as possible. Yeah. And it does have kind of an aggressive undercut underneath that, the, that front part of the side pod, kind of as you might imagine the Aston Martin has, has a huge undercut that goes all the way to the back. But the Ferrari undercut stops almost immediately after the inlet and it turns aggressively outwards. And in fact, there has this large sort of sidewall to the to the, um, uh, to the side pod that can actually be a very useful tool for keeping the front tire wake uh, away from the body and keeping it from attaching to the downforce producing elements near the back of the car. But what's very interesting about it is even though we, we have an idea about what that might be useful for, you, you really don't know for sure without a full CFT simulation what I will say is that the kind of negative geometry that we see in that side pod, not only could it produce a flow field that potentially could produce a bit of extra downforce near the, the back end of it, but it also provides a, a local flow direction for the cooling flow from those louvers that we see 
that's actually perfectly aligned with that sort of slot gap between the top of the beam wing and the bottom and the bottom of the, the main wing of the rear wing. It's a very nice location or near the center of the car where you could eject cooling flow, which is low energy flow typically, and not have to worry about it ruining the downforce of your car. If you look at the Aston Martin, for example, as I mentioned before, it has a very large undercut underneath it where the flow path is very clear where some of the high energy flow can approach the, the rear of the floor and the diffuser. But on top, it has a many, many louvers, many, many openings. And the issue that I could see with that is the more of those openings you have and the farther forward they are, if you don't have, have precise control over the local flow direction, that cooling flow could, <clears throat> could go just about anywhere, especially in a turn. And you definitely don't want that impinging on some of your more important elements. So there are certain aspects of that Ferrari design that are unique compared to other designs we've seen that have the cooling louvers in them. Yeah, that, that really is uh, fascinating. And um, as an engineer yourself, do, do what is your sense of appreciation? Like we, we've seen eight cars, arguably a couple of them aren't really the final thing, of course, but... Just the, the the different range, like I said, I mean, no two cars are, are the same, and some of them are radically different uh, from, from the others. So, what does that what does that really indicate to, to the thought process going on throughout the Formula One world in all these different teams with all these uh, engineers and designers trying to interpret that? What, what's your take on that, Bryson? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been brilliant. <clears throat> you know, I mean, I know many people were concerned prior to the regulations being implemented and. After seeing that demo car in, in Silverstone, many people were concerned that we were approaching a spec series, that we were going to yeah. have you know, 10 cars or 20 cars on the grid that looked exactly the same. That's been not at all what we've seen. And I think the biggest area has been in, in side pod development. What I will say about this, though, is that there are some incredibly talented and incredibly qualified people that work in these Formula One teams. They're, they're brilliant people. And one thing that I think most people need to understand is that brilliant people disagree on things, right? It, it, brilliant people have different ideas about the best way to achieve a certain goal. They may have certain ideas about how to optimize a surface geometry or even change the entire philosophy of how the car is working. And I think even if they had exactly the same people trying to make exactly the same decision, each team has different access to different tools. Their wind tunnels are not exactly the same. Their CFD packages are not exactly the same. So even in the best case scenario where we have a brilliantly qualified person, everyone is trying to accomplish the same goal, and in an ideal world, they would make the same decision, they actually aren't being presented with the same information. So invariably, we're going to see a variation in the designs, and the variation of designs that we've seen are so significant, there's no question in my mind that some teams have gotten it right and some teams have gotten it wrong. What I would urge the, the listening public to do is not listen to anyone who says, this team is definitely behind. This team definitely does not understand what's going on. The, the, the ultimate arbiter of genius is lap time. Yeah. Whether if, if your car is fast, it doesn't matter if you don't understand why it's fast. It's fast. <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we can figure it out later. I, I can guarantee you 99% of the you know, flying public has no idea how a Kruger flap works. You know, they, they don't need to know these things in order to be the beneficiary of it. So what I would say, <clears throat> what I would say is that there are many possible variations to the designs that we've seen. We'll see where people are in testing. It's not always representative. We'll see where people are in qualifying in Bahrain. And because of it's a new regulation change, the development slope 
is going to be extremely high. We should expect to see race upon race variations of the cars converging on the solutions that they think will actually work. And I think that's probably one of the more exciting things about this season is while it's true that the, the design changes are designed to make it easier for cars to race each other, in reality, anytime there's a regulation change, it it, it spreads the field apart. Mm-hmm. Even in a regulation change designed to improve racing, what it will do is cars that happen to have a similar performance level, it should make it easier for them to race each other, which is yeah. what we're looking for. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. I know Mark's dying to jump in here, ask you a, another question, but I, I just had one thought to follow up on that, uh, Bryson. And we often hear people saying, well, if one team does that in, in Formula One and it works, then everybody else is going to copy it and do the same thing and try and improve their own cars. I mean, but my question to you is, and um, I, I'm not sure how, well, I mean, I know you'll be able to answer it, but I mean, Formula <laughs> One has evolved to uh, such a high level now. I mean, the, these cars almost resemble, I mean, it's almost like aerospace, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, technology. I mean, we're not just talking about throwing a gurney flap on the back of a, a wing and everybody does the same thing, which I mean, was a brilliant innovation in and of itself way back when. But Some I mean, people these, put it on upside down. That, yeah, that it's, it's, it, it doesn't work if you put it on the wrong <laughs> way, of course. But my question is now, is, is it uh, Formula One just gotten to the point that it is just so far advanced that, okay, you just can't copy and paste an idea from one car to another because what works on a Ferrari might not work on a, a Mercedes and, and vice versa, right? That is true, but I think you have to understand that you, 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 for, for precisely the reason that you said, the designs are never perfectly copied. They're actually remixed. Uh, you can think of another design as being inspired by uh, uh, what people have seen. For example, there's a very innovative solution or interpretation to the tea tray or the bib uh, in the cars that Aston Martin had that they showed off in their launch. And my understanding is that Ferrari saw that particular piece on the Aston Martin and fabricated their own version of it and incorporated mm. it into their own car. Now, what they did was not exactly replicate what they saw on the Aston Martin, but they remixed it based on their own CFD and their own way of optimizing it. So in fact, what Aston Martin initially had the idea for, Ferrari could have copied and potentially improved, which mm. Aston Martin can themselves see and then improve their own design, right? So this, this copying and this feedback process that's involved between the teams, it only benefits everyone because everyone sees what everyone else does. People assume that because you know the team Haas is like last in the championship, no one will be looking at what their car is doing. But in fact, they were one of the people who developed the initial uh, Venetian blind solutions on the outside part of the barge boards hmm. that were an extremely successful design idea. It was slightly modified for the other teams, but in the end, every single team on the grid in 2021 had an innovation that was originally developed on the Haas. So it's it's a mutually beneficial process. Remix, I love that. I think that's the perfect way to uh, describe it. Uh, I've been saying copying people's ideas, but uh, that that <laughs> that's a brilliant ob- observation. I'm going to run with that from here, but I'll credit you, of course. 
I like that. It's a very generous interpretation of what I think has been a common trait of Formula One for many decades. Bryson, I, I'm going to ask this question because I, I'm curious, and it kind of goes back to what you said a couple of minutes ago about the fact that there were a lot of fans and analysts that were perhaps worried last year that Ferrari or Ferrari, Formula One could be inching its way towards something resembling a spec series, probably something more in line with Formula E. But you make this great question about the fact that all these great people that are staffing each of the individual teams from a design and an engineering perspective have drawn wildly different conclusions about how the aerodynamic surfaces and the suspension should work. And one of the things that I've been most taken aback by is the fact that you have three teams in Mercedes, Aston Martin, and Williams that are all rocking the same power unit and the same gearbox. And in fact, Williams, for the first time, is actually buying the transferable Mercedes gearbox, and they've always insisted on buying their own. So despite that, and despite the fact that the suspension components themselves are transferable and could be purchased from Mercedes, you look at Aston Martin, they made the decision that, hey, we're going to use the Mercedes power unit and gearbox. We're also going to buy their rear suspension, but we're going to develop our own front suspension. And then you look at McLaren, who is also using the same power unit and mm -hmm. the same gearbox. They've decided not only that they're going to develop their own front suspension and rear suspension, but they're going to go with the unusual pull rod configuration. Have you been as surprised as I have that these teams have gone in such drastically different directions, despite the fact that they're all using the same power unit and gearbox configuration? Yeah, I think this is a really important point. And, you know, when we talk about different teams having the same like power unit, for example, and even gearbox, there are a couple of things that we could mean by that. For example, the power unit does not include necessarily the intake manifold. It does not necessarily include the exhaust. And it certainly does not include the cooling configuration. So each team is developing their own solutions to these particular problems. And each of them comes up with a slightly different answer. As I said before, your ability to develop a certain side pod concept is critically dependent on how you set up the cooling and the radiators. That's a, a very interesting thing. And regarding McLaren and the suspension, I think what happened on the, on, just, just to be clear for people who don't know, historically, since about 2009, 2010, all Formula One cars have had a pull rod rear suspension and a push rod front suspension just because of the packaging and the way things work out, it kind of just made sense. But with the 2022 regulations, given how much lower the top of the nose needs to be and given certain other characteristics, the idea of a pull rod front suspension actually became far more viable. And there were many ideas that, you know, some teams could actually pursue it. We know officially that McLaren has pursued it. Uh, we know unofficially Red Bull also has a pull rod uh, front suspension. And we know that from images from, from Silverstone. So that particular idea is not necessarily something that we should look at as a necessary game-changing difference between the teams. Each team will come up with their own solution, and what works for one team really might not be best for another team. You know, look at AlphaTauri, for example. AlphaTauri is supposed to be taking the front suspension from Red Bull, but the renders they released and other information that we have suggest that they actually have a push rod front suspension, even though <laughs> Red Bull has a pull rod. Wow. So it's it's a very complicated question. And I think I think the thing that we should keep in mind is we don't know what the right answer is yet. Right? We just we just don't know. We we really should say, hey, let's let the engineers make the best decisions that they can based on the information that they have. Let's see what the running order is in Bahrain and move on from there. 
it's just a very complicated process. And the fact that we see multiple solutions from multiple teams suggests that either solution could work. It's just a question of compromises and sort of marginal gains. But, you know, we'll, we'll see how things are in Bahrain. Uh, Bryson, he, one final question for me before I pass over to Daly, because sure. I know he's going to he's gonna wrap this up before we get to listener questions, but this is probably <laughs> a quick question. And it, it just goes back to something I saw you tweet, but we've seen during this car release, car launch season, we've seen everything from what we believe to be almost final spec cars to cars that are hitting the track within hours of the reveal to teams that are releasing nothing but very basic renders or cars that are wearing the livery that are simply an FIA purchase show car. Mm. In your perspective, should there be some mandated regulations about what teams are showing? Should teams be required to show something resembling a near final spec car or should they be able to continue to show a 2022 FIA show car with a modern livery? So here's the thing. I, I completely understand the rationale for showing nothing. I understand that if you have a very innovative solution that you want to give your enemies, your enemies, <laughs> your, your rivals, the minimum possible time to copy, you want to be secretive if you can. I get it. Trust me, I do. Yeah. It's just that on the fan side, on our side, understanding that we're actually looking at, it doesn't have to be a final version, just a version of your own work would be an ideal thing. But when you're passing off someone else's work or non-work in this case, because you know the FIA show car is not a car; it's just the shape of a car. It's not you could not roll it <laughs> um, to pass that off as your car. There's something slightly unsavory about it, and I think if there was not necessarily a mandate, but an informal agreement between the teams that everyone had to show some version of their own work, it would make it a lot easier for teams to feel comfortable revealing their car to the public and yeah. they wouldn't feel the need to be quite as secretive because whatever secrets they're revealing, they will be getting just as much back from the other teams who will be showing their own cars. So as far as I understand, I would say we've seen one and a half uh, false cars. <laughs> what I mean, what I, what I mean by that is, <laughs> what, what I mean by that is uh, the car that was shown as a Red Bull eight uh, RB 18 is definitely an FIA show car that was, Reliveried in the official launch. There's no question about that. But also the Alpha Tauri that was released, I believe, has placeholder front wing and a placeholder rear wing as well. Hmm. I think the only genuine elements of that car are between the front wheels and the rear wheels, in between the sort of the side pods and the design of the Coke bottle and things like that. But there are certain elements of their front and rear wings that I don't think are at all representative of what the car actually looks like. Um, so, so yeah, I, I definitely agree that it could be a good idea, nothing formal, nothing, you know, mandated, but an informal agreement between the teams to show something, uh, during these launches for the fans. So the fans have an opportunity to look at some genuine work and, uh, appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's go to some, uh, question now, guys. Uh, first one comes from Steve Williams at Steve Fred Will. And his question is, uh, how much different does climate affect aero? Not so much rainy slash sunny days, but humid to dry or even days with higher and lower barometric levels. Is it noticeable to a driver? Great question. Oh, it can definitely be noticeable to a driver. I mean, if you can talk about Mexico, there are many drivers and, and even media personnel and people who have headaches at night because they're dealing with uh, altitude effects. Hmm. Um, when you talk about the aerodynamics of a car, it's not really the pressure directly that matters or the temperature directly that matters as far as the aerodynamics. It's really the density. You know, if you were to look at the, the, the basic fundamental equations for sort of aerodynamics, 
and look at what the lift force is of an aerodynamic shape. It depends on a lift coefficient, you know, and a, a, a reference area, and it depends on dynamic pressure. Dynamic pressure is a quantity that depends on the density and the velocity, or more precisely, the velocity squared. And the amount of force that you experience, that uh, aerodynamic shape experiences, is proportional to dynamic pressure. So if you have exactly the same you know, velocity, exactly the same shape, exactly the same orientation, but your density is cut by 50%, your lift or downforce will also be cut by 50%. Not only that, that impacts your cooling as well significantly because the engine is rejecting whatever heat it's rejecting, but there's less air mass flow to carry the heat away. So yeah, altitude is absolutely a function. Uh, rain and sort of humidity questions, there, there's definitely a non-zero relationship there. And I know that you know most internal combustion engines do tend to consume a little bit more fuel on more humid days or more rainy days. Um, but more often than not, you know, when it's raining, like really, really chucking it down during a race, the cars are going so much slower than they would be in dry conditions that overall you're typically saving fuel mm -hmm. compared to what you'd be running in the dry. In fact, it's one of the reasons why Sebastian Vettel was so marginal on his fuel consumption in Hungary last year is because the weather conditions were so changeable. It was wet to begin with, and they fueled the cars for a wet running, but it ended up being dry towards the end, and the fuel consumption went way up, and that would mm -hmm. actually lead you to be marginal in the end. So it's, it's definitely something to consider, um, but teams usually have models for how what the variation is. Yeah, talk about uh, really walking that, <clears throat> excuse me, that thin line with Sebastian. And just uh, those changing conditions just uh, came probably a little bit sooner than they expected. So it's amazing how razor thin the the the, the parameters are that they have. Sorry, Mark, you were going to ask uh, something. Yeah, the the next question is from at the J Bob, and the question is, and this is a good question: Power unit cover shapes seem to vary quite a bit between the cars we've seen so far. How does the shape of the body here affect airflow and downforce? Also, most noses have continuous first wing leading edges, except for Mercedes. What are your thoughts here? Yeah, I would I would add Ferrari to the list of teams that don't have a, a a separated first element to their to their wing. But yeah, we've seen tremendous variation in in the engine covers, and really more generally the side pods and the areas going to the coke bottle as well. Um, I mean, fundamentally, there's two things you can think about. You can think about how do we reduce the drag of the car and how do we improve the downforce? It's not necessarily about the side pods making downforce themselves, but it's about guiding and directing a high energy clean flow to the back of the diffuser as easily as possible. You want to keep low energy things like the wake of your front tires or any other dirty flow features from making their way to those parts of the floor. Because if you can generate as much, you know, high energy flow and clean, Undisturbed flow and deliver it to the back of the car efficiently and under several conditions. That sets the conditions for the entire bottom of the car. You know, we we talk about the diffuser at the back of the car as being something that sort of slows the air down as it comes underneath the car. That's true in terms of thinking what happens to an individual particle, but I think conceptually, I would almost call it an accelerator, right? Because the velocity difference between the front of the diffuser and the back of the diffuser is set largely by the angle and, and the ride height. Hmm. But if you can minimize the pressure behind it, minimize it and make that pressure lower, that results in a reduction in pressure all the way underneath the floor from, from front to back. It's kind of a, a characteristic of subsonic flow that changes you make in the back of a flow can propagate up forward. So the, the primary question is, 
how can we get as much clean air as possible to the back of the floor, number one? And then where is that air coming from? Is it coming from just inside of the tires? Is it coming from above, you know, next to the driver's head and sort of coming down? These are what these different side pod designs really have a, a, an impact on. With respect to the front wing, as I mentioned before, there are many things in aviation that find their way to motorsports. Having a, a front wing element that's detached from the nose and allows you to have a slot gap there produces a nice high energy flow locally underneath the, the back side of the nose that can help minimize losses and even prevent flow separation potentially. You can be far more aggressive with the back side of your nose if it's a, if you want to with that slot gap there. If the first element joins directly to the nose, such as in the Mercedes design or, or in the Ferrari design, generally speaking, it will have more losses and there will be an area of flow separation underneath there. However, as I've said before, you know, Ferrari, Mercedes, they know what they're doing. They're seeing certain things in their design. You may be trading one thing for gaining it somewhere else. So we don't know precisely what the result will be, but generally speaking, it should be possible to have a more aggressive backside geometry to the nose if you want it uh, with the deconnected uh, first element. And sometimes you call this the slat effect. Okay. You might hear. So similar to like slats and slots that you get on, a, on an aircraft? It is exactly the yeah. same thing. Yeah. It is exactly the same thing. Cool. Awesome. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, next question comes from uh, Michelle at Mish310, and her question is, how does the Afalo affect the arrow of the car? I assume it's a standard piece, so all the teams are dealing with the same detriment. Yeah, regard with regards to the halo, uh, I did inquire about this uh, earlier today. The halo is actually a standard uh, prescribed part, okay, or certain parts of it are, are prescribed geometry in the same way that the front wheel sort of They've been called bud flaps, but really they're, they're aerodynamic devices, to, they're, they're weight control devices, the guide vanes in the front wheel. A big part of that geometry is entirely prescribed. Part of that is for safety reasons. Uh, part of that could be for aerodynamics. In fact, it's one of the easy ways to disqualify some of the concepts. I look, I've seen some concepts and someone will say, this is a leaked image. It's a leaked image of the car. And look at the halo. I'm like, that's not the FIA halo shape. <laughs> that's that's not what it is. Um, so the the halo wake definitely could be a concern. Uh, the wake of that is low energy, and the trajectory of it could lead to going either into the air intake, which reduces your uh, internal combustion engine performance, or it could impinge somewhere on the beam wing or the the rear wing. So the engineers definitely will take uh, steps to carefully mitigate where that wake goes. And for example, you know, for example, if you look at the Ferrari, they gave us the, the introductory video. There were several guide vanes on that, you know, one outwashing and another inwashing one downstream that are specifically designed to control the, the wake that comes off of the halo. Um, so it's definitely something that all teams have to consider. And different teams come up with different solutions. Aston Martin tends to have these two outwashing sort of stubby veins on the top of their halo. Other teams have uh, a multi-element slat 
or you could call it a, a boomerang wing that goes mm. over the top of the yep. halo to help reduce the size of the flow separation. Um, that can be very helpful. Um, but again, it'll change the local flow field and there are any number of things that can uh, be consequences of that. Each team will come up with their own solutions. But yeah, it's definitely a concern and definitely something that the engineers have to mitigate. Another question here, and I think this is one that it's funny. You're very, 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 you're very polite in your assessment of your knowledge and your capabilities when it comes to interpreting Formula One design and aero philosophies. But I think one area where you probably very much are a subject matter expert is when we talk about aircraft. So Ben Bullock at Ben Bullock, Ben asks a great question. I'd love some technical color on ground effects for airplanes in F1. Why does the force push up for planes and down for F1? And how do the wings and other aero guide the air and the vortices? Yeah, I think the best way to think about this is not in the specifics of what the geometry is doing, but what effect it has on the flow field. So for example, if I had a wing that was creating lift, the way that we typically represent that is a, a normal uniform flow going from left to right, but superimposed on that, we would have a vortex. And in fact, if you had a vortex going from left to right and it was producing lift upwards, that vortex would be in a clockwise direction, right? That is a, a, a broad view, a broad overview of what the effect of a lift generating element does to a uniform flow, it creates a vortex superimposed on a uniform flow. Now, why does this matter in terms of ground effect? I think the easiest way to understand this is what is a ground plane really, but a dividing line between sort of a physical world and a mirror image of it on the other side, right? So in aerodynamics, typically what you'll do is if you're trying to actually compute how much the lift will change as a function of, of ground effect, what you'll do conceptually is take exactly how far your object is and the vortex that I mentioned that represents it, and you will put a mirror image on the exact opposite side of the ground plane. And instead of pretending the ground is actually there, you just solve the flow with those two vortices there and compute the solution. Now, as I mentioned before, we have a superposition of a uniform flow and a rotating flow. Now, as you might imagine, if you have a clockwise rotating vortex, and you have a flow from left to right, as you might have with an aircraft, you know, that, that's uh, creating positive lift, the direction of that rotating uh, velocity component and the free stream are, are opposite directions between the vortex and the ground, as you might imagine, mm -hmm. right? If you take the vortex from the other side of that mirror image plane, it will also be pointing in that same forward direction. It's actually contributing to slowing the flow down in between the vortex and the ground plane. So what actually ends up happening is whatever the orientation of your lift vector is and the associated vorticity from that, adding a ground plane just amplifies it. So if it was creating lift prior to being close to the ground, it will create more lift. If it was creating downforce prior to going close to the ground plane, it will create more downforce. It's simply an addition to what's already there. And the best way to think about it is not really a ground plane itself, but think of it a perfect mirror image of that on the other side of the ground and the aerodynamic impact that that mirror image has on the original flow. That's probably the easiest way to think about it. Uh, if you guys are familiar with the um, the Bloodhound LSR project, where they were developing a supersonic car that's going that was going to do a thousand miles per hour, uh, a rocket powered and jet powered car. One of the ways that they tested the aerodynamics of that car in the wind tunnel was not to build their simple model and put it, you know, on a sting, but they built the model and they built the mirror image of it on the bottom of it. Oh, and wow. then ran that in the wind tunnel. 
And that really accurately represented the, the flow in the ground between the car and the, and the surface. And so there's some very cool things that you end up doing mathematically that actually kind of make sense physically as, as well. But the easiest way to think about what happens with ground effect is it simply amplifies whatever is already there. So if you were making lift, it would create more lift. If you were making downforce, it would create more downforce. The easiest way to understand that is to think about a lift producing element as a circulation imposed on a uniform flow and then mirroring that on the opposite side of the ground. If you just do the vectors and add them up, you'll see it just amplifies the original force. I've got one question. I don't know if there'll be a quick one or not, but just uh, sort of generally speaking, when it comes to, to aerodynamics, we always uh, talk about, uh, you know, the flow going from front to back. Is there anything to take into account to, um, you know, from side to side uh, when it comes to aerodynamics or are these aircraft and these cars just going so fast that those effects, um, you know, from other directions, other uh, axes, uh, are they negligible or how much do they come into play? No, they're definitely not negligible. And, you know, especially in Formula One, with the extreme outwash that the cars had previously, it's a huge factor in how the flow was working. Um, it's definitely never, even in a supersonic flow, it's not going to be the case that uh, sideways flows are negligible. There's just a, a cone of influence where if it's supersonic, there's a region, a cone in which disturbances could possibly propagate. Mm-hmm. In a subsonic flow, you can propagate in any direction at any time all parts of the car. That's why even though conceptually we think about F1 cars as, you know, going from front to back and the, the wing does its own thing and then it hits the radiator inlets and the side pods and goes to the back, even though that's conceptually the way we think of things, the reality is every single part of the car impacts every single other part of the car, right? Yeah. There's actually no way to design something in isolation in a, in a subsonic flow. So the short answer to your question is side flows definitely matter. And there's something that has to be considered. Red Bull has kind of been forced into a low rake philosophy this year, which is different from what they typically do. And so they're going to have to do things slightly differently than they used to before especially with regard to those side flows, if they can. Yeah, no, it's interesting because uh, often you, you see something happen in a race, like the, the end plate on the front of a, uh, on a front wing or a portion of the floor gets damaged by contact or going over a, a, a curb or whatever. You know, there's so many different things that can happen out uh, during the course of a race. And it, I guess it just goes to prove that these cars are just one big working system, that if one element gets damaged or broken or is completely removed from the car because of an accident or something like that, just how would it affects the, the way the rest of the car is working, you know, down the line, further down the, uh, the, the length uh, of the car or wherever it, wherever yeah, it is. And, and even, even yeah. forwards. Yeah. We mentioned yeah. The, the, the gurney, the gurney flap before. Yeah. I, I could show you what the pressure distribution around an airfoil is with the gurney flap on and with it off. And it doesn't just change the flow at the trailing edge. It changes the flow around the entire airfoil. Yeah, because of this communication effect. Re- really quickly before we wrap it up, uh, Bryson, just wanted to speak quickly about the gurney flap because it's a very simple, but I always thought it was such a brilliant innovation. The gurney flap is by far my favorite aerodynamic device. And in fact, I've been lucky enough in my life experience to have met Bob Liebeck, uh, who is an alumni uh, of the university where I am. And he was actually one of the people who worked at Douglas, who did some of the first wind tunnel analysis and one of the first theoretical treatments of gurney flaps uh, in the 70s. And the gurney flap is such an amazing thing because, you know, from an aerodynamicist point of view, what it effectively modifies is what we might call a cutter condition. And the cutter condition essentially says that the flow needs to leave the trailing edge smoothly, that the velocity needs to be smooth on, on either side of the trailing edge. 
it's a, it's a characteristic of you know uh, theory for for airfoils. What the gurney flap does is it effectively decouples the pressure side and the suction side of the trailing edge. It not only not only increases the local vorticity there, but it improves the flow on the suction side to maybe make the pressure gradient a little bit less severe. And it also builds a slight high pressure area on the pressure side. Both are things which can sort of open up the trailing edge of the lift distribution that really improve the downforce of the wing. It doesn't necessarily cost you a whole lot of drag either. Uh, it's a very simple, very, very interesting device. And in fact, I had a post earlier on this year that showed it was actually used on actual aircraft, low-speed aircraft and helicopters in particular uh, use a gurney flap. So it doesn't just apply to motorsports. Hmm. You know, we, we do all kinds of things in aviation that find their way into motorsports, but that's a it's a two-way street. And there's some really cool applications of it outside of uh, racing. Yeah, that's cool. I had no idea that the gurney flap had actually found its way into uh, into aviation. Where would they throw it onto a helicopter, for example? Um, the rear wing, uh, the rear stabilizers at the, okay. at the back of it. They're very, very thin, uh, heavily aerodynamically loaded uh, devices. Um, and typically, it can significantly improve their efficiency and effectiveness right at the very back. So not, not on the rotating blades, yep. but on the stabilizing surfaces near the back. Yeah, it's just one of those engineering fixes that uh, that is so simple but so brilliant and, and so effective, and 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 I love that, uh, you know, not not just in motorsport, but uh, wherever engineers uh, encounter problems and solutions, it's sometimes these simple ones are just uh, they they really just blow my mind. I, I've I've done some CFD with gurney flaps on uh, a low pressure turbine, yeah, right, in a, in a gas in a gas turbine engine, so. Believe me, they, they have many, many applications. That's fantastic. Well, Bryson, thank you so very much uh, again for coming by and, and breaking this uh, all down for us. Uh, you do such a great job taking these very complicated uh, concepts and theories and breaking it down and explaining it uh, so it's more accessible to, uh, to to the rest of us. So before we let you go, like you're a busy fellow, you've got a lot going on. Where can we find you online? I know you're available in many different mediums. Yeah, I'm, I'm primarily on Twitter, it happens. Uh, Twitter is a kind of the wild west at the moment, but that's kind of where, <laughs> yeah, I, it is. where I am. Uh, you know, at the, my handle is, is natural paradigm. Um, you know, since the last time I was here, we did develop a, uh, a discord server. That's a sort of an F1 tech discord server. It's focused on not only giving a lot of detail about certain things uh, in aerodynamics or vehicle dynamics or suspension or track discussion, um, but also about answering fundamental questions. There's a channel there about sort of F1 101 with simple things like what's an undercut, <laughs> you know, what what's tire squirt, <laughs> these type <laughs> of things that don't come up in everyday, you know, conversations, but are definitely things that the technically savvy people in the F1 world would like to know. Um, I can share a link uh, later what the uh, Discord server invite is. Um, there are plenty of very knowledgeable people there, some of them who work for Formula One teams currently. Wow. Um, so they, they can provide very useful information, nothing secret, Nothing, nothing illegal, but, but they, we can, we can leverage their actual expertise yeah. to, uh, answer relevant questions. Well, that's fantastic. Again, thanks for your time, Bryson. We'll have to reconnect here very shortly after these cars take the track and we get a chance to get, uh, get some eyes on them and, uh, see how they behave, how they perform and, and who's got it right, who's gotten it wrong and, uh, and everywhere in between. So, uh, thank you again for your time and we look forward to talking to you again soon.
All right. Well, everybody, welcome back to the show. Hope you enjoyed uh, that uh, conversation with uh, Bryson. If you're watching on the live stream, you'll have to go back and uh, check for that. We'll probably post that in one form or another, or just listen to to the podcast. It's all going to be there somewhere uh, to to find and enjoy. So, Mark, plenty of things uh, to talk about. And I just wanted to say, because, of course, we, um, like I said uh, earlier in the show, we pre-recorded this with uh, Bryson just due to his... um, availability this week. We actually couldn't do it closer to the the, the shakedown itself. So we didn't actually have the benefit to, to see anything that uh, that was happening on the track or see any pictures and see these cars in action. But, you know, having said that, I, I really just love the way that um, that, that Bryson is able to, to, to take these, these what were still concepts three or four days ago when we chatted with him compared to now is uh, what is uh, reality. And I know that what he does uh, professionally is a little bit different than, than than Formula One, which he says and admits is a very specialized technical field, but he has that expertise, he has that knowledge, and he does such a great way of, I think, of condensing it and distilling it down for the rest of us uh, to, to understand. And one thing I really appreciate, Bryson, is that you know what comes out of his mouth is very carefully thought out, and every single word counts, whatever he's talking about. I think he did a wonderful job breaking down these new cars for our, for us. And, you know, I really wish we could have done this today to get his uh, initial take, because I love this new term that's come up uh, that we've seen on the track about porpoising. I mean, this wasn't even a thing a couple of days ago, <laughs> but why don't you explain to the folks at home what porpoising is in, uh, in, in this new context of these cars? So first of all, I, I very much agree with you about Bryson. And, you know, we have some really great repeat guests that come on the show when we always have fantastic feedback about having them on, whether it's Tim Haraney or Matt Sakaris. Bryson is someone who has demanded a degree of loyalty from our listeners that is simply unprecedented. The number of messages and emails and DMs and faxes that I get asking when we're going to bring Bryson back on again (laughs) is absolutely absurd. So I'm very, very happy that hopefully some of that pressure will, uh, will depressurize, I don't know, slide away <laughs> a little bit uh, until you know we get back to the situation two months from now where folks are demanding he come back on. But yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I think he's very economical worth his words. And I would say that over the course of the last five, six, seven, eight months, as he's begun to really amass this real uh, allegiance in, in following on social media, I think his ability to articulate very complex uh, Subject matter has continued to improve. And, you know, when he came on the show in September, conceptually, I understood a lot of what he was saying. But when I hear him talk now, he's evolved the way that he addresses certain subjects and he's making the subject matter even that much more accessible. So it's easier for us to understand because a lot of these arrow concepts are very, very, very complicated. And sometimes if I see something written down, mm-hmm. I need to reread it three or four times and then Google a couple of terms and ultimately give up and go and ask my wife, who's an engineer, what something <laughs> means. But I think what we've discovered this week, and I'm going to kind of change course here a little bit to get back to your original question is we went into Barcelona and Barcelona was originally scheduled to be a three-day winter testing session. And winter testing sessions are typically very, very structured. So you have a general understanding of what's going to happen. And it is the team simply running out their cars, running out their drivers. And what they're trying to do during winter testing sessions is simply put in as many 
laps as possible. Now, they're not necessarily going out there trying to record the fastest lap times possible, but they simply need to get the cars out there and they need to start running laps so they can start accumulating data. Mm -hmm. And over the course of a winter testing day, these teams are generating gigabytes and gigabytes of data from the telemetry that's being reported back to their mission control at their factories from the data and the sensors in the car. So it's all about just getting the cars on track as much as possible. So if you hear a team, hey, you know what? Let's say Aston Martin or Red Bull or Alpha Tauri. Let's just say that that team recorded a hundred laps or Max Verstappen put in a 70 lap session. That's good. It's all about just accumulating data. Now, it was announced about a month ago that Barcelona, which was supposed to be a winter testing session, and you can typically buy tickets to go and attend winter uh, testing. It wasn't going to be a winter testing session. It was effectively going to be behind closed doors. And initially I was really upset about this because I want to be able to watch winter testing while I'm working. I want it on the <laughs> TV and I want to see the timings and I want to know sure. everything that's going on. And what Formula One announced instead was that this was going to be a behind closed door shakedown. And, you know, Marshall, one of our, one of our listeners and a, a common participant in our spaces chat really cleaned me up on this one. He's like, first of all, Mark, he's like, winter testing is un bearably boring at the best of times. <laughs> and there's oftentimes no cars on the track. And he's like, number two, he's like, these teams are rolling out fundamentally new cars and nobody is prepared for what's necessarily going to happen. Yeah. And the last thing that the teams need is every single move that they make while they've got that car on the track for the very first time to be broadcast globally on the F1 TV pro app. So Formula One had made a decision in collaboration with the teams that this winter testing session was more of a shakedown. Like get your cars out there, try different parts. It's going to be behind closed doors. You can close your garage doors when you bring the car back in. It's a shakedown. Just get the car in a running state. So when we get to Bahrain for the real winter testing, you can start putting in some really good laps. Now, one of the things that we discovered this week is that the new downforce, the new mechanism for generating downforce, which is the floors of the car, have created some moderately unexpected circumstances. So to back this up a little bit, back in the late 70s and the early 80s, Formula One teams led by Colin Chapman and the team Lotus had developed this concept of creating downforce through the floor of the car. They effectively turned the floor of the car into a wing. And in essence, by channeling and controlling the flow of air under the car, they were able to create downforce. And this was a huge, huge win for Formula One back then. And because Lotus was on the cutting edge of creating downforce by by, by using the bottom of the car, mm -hmm. they were able to become very, very successful. Now, by I think about 1981, one of the mechanisms that they were using to channel the air and seal the air under the car, which were these really deep side skirts, the FIA realized that, hey, look, the cars are getting uncontrollably fast and they're generating significantly more downforce in corners, allowing much greater speed than we believe is safe. So at first the FIA stepped in and said, look, no more side skirts because we don't want to seal the air because you're creating too much downforce. And by 1983, they realized, look, darn right. These teams are simply creating too much downforce using the undersides of the cars. They're carving out a wing on the underside of the car. They're creating more, too much downforce. And the risk was what scared the teams, what scared the FIA. Well, really it scared the FIA more than the teams because they're the ones that were responsible for managing the safety in the sport was that they were carrying too much speed into corners. And if they were carrying too much speed into corners and they momentarily lost traction, if they momentarily lost that downforce, the resulting impact in crash 
could be deadly. So by 1983, the FIA stepped in and said, no more underfloor downforce. You're going with flat fours, which yeah. is what we've run until recently. Yeah, well, now, I, I what think... We've Sorry, Please. I was just going to jump in. I, I think that part of the reason, too, with the uh, the, the previous uh, version of the ground effects was, um, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, is that I, I believe that the car actually left the road, that it would actually have the, the opposite effect, which we tragically saw with uh, Gilles Villeneuve at Zolder in 1982 yep. when he was, he was killed, right? And then in short order, like you say, uh, thereafter, they, uh, they, they banned the ground effects on the car, and we haven't seen it for over 40 years, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's beautiful context and really what we saw with with Vilnov was really the kind of the defining moment that spelled the end of ground force mm -hmm. that absolutely this is an aerodynamic and engineering achievement the tracks aren't safe enough the tires aren't safe enough the sport wasn't safe enough to accommodate ground effects at that point so yeah. now what we've seen this week is these teams now for the first time are rocking formula one cars with ground effects and this is the first time we've seen it since the 1980s so it's new to the drivers it's new to the engineers it's new to the designers it's mm -hmm. new to the mechanics and what we've seen this week and the really fun buzzword that's come out of testing so far has been this this term called porpoising and you've probably seen on social media on tiktok oh i don't know i don't go on tiktok i'm terrified <laughs> of that platform but what you've probably seen on instagram what you've probably seen on youtube right now is these visions or these videos of slow motion formula one cars coming down the track and they're bobbing up and down and you can see the driver's helmet violently jerking back and forth and what's what what's what's effectively happening is the ground effects as it's designed are functioning. So mm -hmm. the front wing, as it's now higher, is helping to channel air under the car. The ground effects are working and they're creating downforce. In the process of creating downforce, the car is compressing on its suspension close to the ground. Now, when there's too much downforce, particularly at the back of the car, that seal, that air effectively get sucked out of the underside of the car. So you're in this moment where you have this tremendous amount of downforce and you have this air that's being sucked under the bottom side of the car. And when the car gets too close to the ground, all of a sudden, all of that oxygen is lost and mm -hmm. the downforce is lost. So suddenly the suspension is violently released. So the car is being sucked to the ground and it gets too close to the ground. The downforce is lost the suspension violently jumps upwards, mm -hmm. the downforce is immediately regained and the car is sucked back towards the ground. So this is typically happening in high speed straights. Now for the drivers, this is physically excruciating. And a couple of oh, the drivers can imagine, talk yeah. about it today Yuki, et cetera. But I think most of them probably don't want to show their cars. But I think we we heard some commentary today about the fact that a lot of these drivers are going to be extremely sore today. Because remember, these cars don't have a traditional streetcar suspension. They don't have comfy seats. They don't have air conditioning. These things are painful to ride at the best of time. And when the car is basically squishing the suspension and rejecting and squishing and jumping and squishing and jumping and the drivers strapped into their seats is incredibly painful. Now, the good news is I think a lot of teams maybe anticipated that this was going to happen and a number of cars actually brought different floors with them. Mm -hmm. So you've got teams like Williams that have already been rotating through different floors. But I think going into the early part of the season, 
the team that's able to design a floor in the Venturi tunnels in such a way that they mitigate this impact without compromising downforce is a team that's probably going to get off to a really good jump start at the beginning of the season. You know, it's interesting too, just going back to your comments a little bit earlier about when uh, they announced that they're going to have this uh, sort of closed door shakedown session. I I was quite sarcastic and cynical and quite negative about the whole thing as well, but I, I'm I've completely flipped on this one. I'm glad that they did, and I'm glad that they're giving the teams the the opportunity to to run these cars in whatever trim they see fit to, to run them as fast or slow as they want to to try and figure them out. Because, I mean, this is um, these cars. Like, like I say, when we talked about with Bryson three or four days ago when we recorded that segment, it, for us it was still a concept. For the teams, some of them had had some of these filming days, so they had some idea of uh, what was happening, although they have very completely different tire compounds and they can only uh, drive a certain distance. So it's not like they're really throwing them around like they would in a race or a test session or a qualifying session, whatever it might be. Uh, So this is interesting. And uh, of course, we we have no idea where everybody's at. I mean, Ferraris looked uh, pretty good. And uh, everybody else has been, I think, fairly candid and realistic and saying, well, you know, we're nowhere near where we, you know, where we're running at what we think this car is, you know, potentially capable of. And that's what I think is is interesting. So this is basically taking this concept and this design, they've gone through the whole, you know, the, the whole cycle, if you want to call it that, in the uh, in these design offices, in the wind tunnels, in the factories. And now we're getting them onto the track and we're seeing whether or not uh, the, these cars are working. And, and what, what, what I really find fascinating is we have now what? Uh, two weeks before we go back to Bahrain for the actual test. So the teams are going to have all these uh, all this different data. Some of them are a little bit uh, better off than than some of these uh, the the others already. But I will be amazed uh, to to see, or I should say, I'll be curious to see who does what in the, these intervening couple of weeks and uh, does the corrections. Because by the time we get to uh, to to Bahrain, by the end of that test, I mean they should be running much faster, much more competitive lap times because the week after that it gets real because then after that last test session then we go into free practice and then qualifying and then we're into race one of the 2022 formula one world championship so it's going to get awfully real awfully quickly but you know having said that i am really looking forward to seeing what is going to transpire in these next couple of weeks in terms of developments in terms of corrections and in terms of increase of uh, performance and potentially who might really struggle once we get to the desert and say, yeah, you know, the car just isn't working the way that we expected or hoped. Some of these teams, yeah, some of these teams are going to go back to the UK because seven of the 10 teams are based out of the UK, but some of these teams are going to head back to the UK after the testing session expires tomorrow. And they're going to feel pretty good that look, you know what? We came in knowing there was going to be some gaps. We got a ton of data. We can take that data back to the factory and we can start making changes on the parts that we deem are problematic. I think there's going to be some other teams that are going to be in a panic because they're going to say, look, we've got a lot of data and certain parts aren't functioning the way that we expected. We've got two weeks to dial some of these things in before we get to winter testing. And then there's going to be some other teams that are going to be super panicked because they simply weren't able to get the laps necessarily to accumulate the 
data to figure out whether they've dialed in their car properly or not. So these three days have been critical and we won't see it. We won't know it. But the next two weeks, the factories will be working around the clock to oh, yeah, find certain sure. components yep. Yep. and certain elements of their car to get them ready for winter testing. Because like you said, once they get through winter testing, it's it's all too real. The championship begins almost immediately. And then you know what? It's on. And at that point, it gets more and more and more difficult. And then the other piece too, and we talked this about this a little bit during the spaces tonight, which is, you know what, the, the engine spec gets frozen in two stages this year. <laughs> yeah. The first wave of that freeze happens in March, and that's upon us as well. And then once we get to the mid-season, all of a sudden that power unit's completely frozen and you don't get to touch it again except for reliability purposes until we get to the new engine formula. <laughs> like in, in 2026. 2026. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know it, it's amazing. But the, the one thing that really stood out, uh, the, the one comment from today, I think it was from Lewis, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, who basically said that Ferrari appears to be months ahead of everybody else. Now, if this turns out to be true, that by the time we get to Bahrain and we see kind of a Braun-esque kind of uh, performance from Ferrari, you know, straight out of the gate and everybody's struggling to keep up. I mean, that's going to be a little bit of a coup because if the, the Scuderia has actually, uh, you know, gotten this right compared to, to everyone else, I mean, that will be amazing because we've been pretty hard on them over the past couple of years that they've been basically nowhere. I mean, they were... They really faded in 2019. There was a whole engine scandal. They've been nowhere in 20 and 21. I mean, they had a, they had a decent-ish 2021. Maybe flew under the radar a little bit, but still, you know, this is a team that's having an okay season. Really, isn't good enough. This is a team that uh, is expected to be a perpetual annual uh, title contender and uh, it'll be massive if they've uh, pulled it off so we'll find out in a couple of weeks and of course all eyes are going to be on uh, the Red Bull and uh, Mercedes the two title contenders or rivals from last year so plenty and plenty of uh, interesting and uh, and exciting threads uh, to pull on going into the season anyways time for another break we'll be back in just a moment and still a lot of things to talk about let's talk about Andretti when we get back because uh, for North American fans this is a this is a fun one so uh, we'll be back after a short message from our sponsors All right, welcome back to the show, and well, another segment in the bag. That means we are now about 15 minutes closer to the weekend, and like I said off the top of the show, I just can't wait to, to get this weekend started. But anyhow, let's talk about um, Andretti. I mean, that's a name that uh, really gets uh, thrown out uh, there a lot. Um, I mean, there was that bid for Sauber a couple of months ago that uh, didn't get um, uh, didn't get done, didn't go ahead. Anyways, uh, it's it's possible that uh, we might see uh, an Andretti team uh, on the grid by 2024. Mario Andretti, 1978 world champion, father of Michael. Michael himself, also a former racing driver, also former Formula One driver for McLaren way back in the in the 90s. So has he's, Michael apparently has approached the FIA to enter a, an 11th T 
team. So add a team to the grid for, for 2021. Um, there was uh, some, I guess, some guarded and cautious responses from some of the team bosses in uh, in Formula One. Um, Total Wolf was uh, basically pretty blunt saying that, uh, Michael, if you want to come and play in Formula One, make sure you show up with at least a billion bucks. <laughs> I, I said billion. I didn't say that uh, uh, incorrectly, but it seems like there's a real desire, at least from the Andretti side, to get into Formula One. From the Formula One and the team side, there seems to say be, I wouldn't say resistance, but it's, let, let's just say that the reaction from the Formula One world seems a little lukewarm. Let's put it that way. What do you think, Mark? I think you, you've you nailed it, that the rest of the Formula One community isn't rushing to embrace the idea of, I don't know that it's the Andretti group or if it's just a new team in general. And I should, I should kind of set the stage a little bit. So we have 10 teams in Formula One. The sporting regulations allow, I can't remember, I should probably double check this, but it allows either 12 or 13 teams in the yep. sport. That's what's agreed upon in the Concord Agreement. That's what's established in the sporting regulation. Now, the challenge is that historically only the top 10 teams score championship prize money. So the threat to teams is either, hey, a new team enters and one of the 10 of us gets bumped out of the top 10 and we don't earn any championship money. Or, you know, the sporting regulations are built in such a way that prize money is distributed to all teams, regardless of whether they finish in the top 10 in the championship. So the risk to a team currently is that if a new team enters the sport, I'm going to forfeit a certain amount of my championship money and I'm going to have to fight that much harder to get sponsors because there's an 11th team on the grid. So when you look at this purely from a business perspective, if I'm Williams, if I'm Haas, if I'm Alfa Romeo, if I am Alfa Tauri, what incentive or motivation do I have mm -hmm. to allow an 11th team onto the grid? Like, what are you going to do for me? How is this going to help me? So there is an entry fee that's already been established that if a new team wants to join Formula One, it needs to pay a $200 million entry yep. fee. And that money is distributed to the existing 10 teams, almost to buy them off. Like, hey, you know what? The team's coming in. Take your slice of this $200 million and shut up. The reality is, given where the financial projections are going for Formula One, that $20 million per team is an absolute drop in the bucket relative to what they would forfeit to an Andretti team via championship prize money, which could be in the tens and tens of millions of dollars annually. So to your point, the reception has been super, super lukewarm. And I think there's a couple reasons for this. One is the fact that if you look at the grid today, there's at least one team that doesn't necessarily have stable ownership. And if I'm Formula One, before I start letting in new teams, I need to address the health of our existing teams. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like Major League Baseball. And Major League Baseball keeps saying, we're not going to expand. We're not going to look at expansion. We're not going to Portland. We're not going to Charlotte. We're not going to Montreal until we've dealt with the stadium issue in Oakland and we've dealt with the stadium issue in Tampa Bay. Once we've resolved those two situations. So I think part of this is Formula One wants to make sure that the financial health of all of its teams is in good working order before it starts expanding. I think the other thing, and I think this gets to the real meat of the issue, is that it's really important to Formula One to drive valuation of the existing teams, right? Like you look globally, there is a scarcity of Formula One teams. There are 10 Formula One teams in the world. There's 32 NFL teams. There's 32 mm -hmm. NHL teams. You look at the NHL, which is by far the smallest of the four major professional North American sporting leagues. If you want an NHL expansion team, it's seven 
hundred million dollars. And if you look at the global consciousness and awareness of Formula One, mm. it dwarfs the NHL times a thousand. So how could a Formula One team only be worth two hundred million dollars? So I think part yep. of this is Formula One doesn't want to be giving away teams because it doesn't want to undervalue its existing teams. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally. So is that what they would have paid uh, for the Seattle Kraken? Was seven hundred million to yeah. get the yeah. Wow, that is uh, that that is amazing. I mean, I, I must admit that even though they're just uh, a little uh, down the, the 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 road here, a couple hundred miles from where we're sitting, and when that whole story broke, when was it about uh, eighteen months ago? I didn't really look into the particulars, but I mean, seven hundred million for an NHL franchise compared to two hundred million for what the um, entry fee or expansion fee or whatever they call it for Formula One, that seems like a, a, a real bargain. If you look at some of the the, the quotes out there, Alpha Tauri team principal Franz Toss said, "quote." We have 10 uh, teams and I think 10 really good teams. And at the end, this is a decision from the FIA and FOM, Formula One Management. And, you know, if Michael wants to come with a new team and if all the ingredients are coming together and all the teams also accept it, then yes, otherwise no. End quote. So, <laughs> you know, that's, I mean, <laughs> talk about like the, the sort of lukewarm kind of a comment, but I, I couldn't help but think that was a bit of a, a political kind of comment right from the top where Toss says we have 10 teams and I think 10 really good teams. I'm like, well, yeah, eight and a half, maybe nine. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm a lot, I mean, we'll talk about Williams here before we go uh, tonight, but certainly I, I think that there's a, an argument to be made for, for, for nine of them, the, the 10th team who shall remain nameless, but we talked about earlier in the show, <laughs> I think there's a, certainly a, a lot of, uh, debate about that. Uh, anyhow, anyways, we'll, we'll see. I mean, you know, you need that two hundred million to get into the sport. Plus, you need all the money to you know, to get your team up and running. You need to pay people. You need to pay drivers. You yeah. need to buy tools and machinery and software. Build a factory. Build a factory. Build a factory. Yeah. Do you know off the top of your head how much uh, Lawrence has sunk into this new factory for Aston Martin? I mean, it's obviously in the hundreds of millions of dollars for that facility. I would expect by the time, you know, they they put the shovels into the ground to, you know, when they open it up and they put all the, you know, the, the, the coffee cream into the fridge and fire up the computers, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's going to be a hefty, hefty price tag. I mean, it's going to be state of the art, but I don't know. Do you, do you know what that uh, price tag was, the cost? Yeah, I, I've heard 200 million bandied about as his, yeah. his in investment, like his physical sure. investment in the infrastructure at Silverstone, where the, uh, the Aston Martin team is based. Yeah, yeah, I, and I, I could totally believe it. I mean, uh, <laughs> there's a lot that goes into uh, into that. But you know, the other thing that kind of shocked me in this story is Michael Andretti is now 59 years old. <laughs> it's like, God, that makes me feel old, but maybe I'm just sort of stuck in a time warp thinking back to like 1990s, uh, you know, open wheel racing with Michael in Indy and then in Formula One and back in uh, back in the, the US again. So maybe I never moved on. I mean, that, that was a time he was racing in Indy cars and so was his dad, you know, I mean, Emerson Fittipaldi was still, Eddie Cheever, Danny Sullivan. I mean, all these guys that I think are kind of like icons of um, of IndyCar and, and open uh, wheel racing in the USA. I mean, uh, wow. But that, that was a bit of a sobering moment uh, for myself. Uh, uh, nonetheless. But uh, one thing is that uh, he's uh, saying is that um, if he uh, does get this team up and running uh, a couple of years from now, he wants to uh, get, uh, you know, he wants to go to the grid with a, an American uh, driver. I mean, uh, we, we've talked about it before that, you know, that, that a lot of speculation would be it would be Colton Herta. I don't think that'd be any news to anybody that's uh, listened to this podcast over the past uh, and see. 
Okay, next. I would just add to that as well that one of the uh, things that's been most disappointing about Haas is that while they like to label themselves as America's F1 team, they have done nothing. (laughs) Yeah, they've done nothing to nurture Formula One in in the US. My my assumption when they came in was that they would build a big, rich academy and pipeline to get young American talents into the lower formulas in the US and that they would get an American driver into the seat of that car as quickly as possible. And we're here six, seven years later, and it's the exact opposite that they've done none of that. So I think Michael Andretti, I think he could be good for the sport. And I definitely don't want it to seem that I'm being negative about all of this, but I kind of get it from the team's perspective that, hey, if we're going to bring a team in, we need to do it right. And we need to do it in such a way that one, the team has the financial resources necessary to be successful, knowing that they could come in and really underperform for three or four or five years. Um, And two, we want to do it in such a way that it adds value to the sport. And by that, they mean add valuation to our existing teams, not detract from their financial well-being. Well, you know, that's a weird thing, too, because, I mean, Haas has been in the sport now, what, six, seven years or something now? I mean, they started out better than where they are now. And I mean, they were were actually pretty decent the first couple of years in Formula One, and they've actually backtracked. I mean, well, I mean, (laughs) that's kind of going down a rabbit hole there, but I mean... It doesn't necessarily mean they'll be at a disadvantage, you know, they, that they'll be horrible, but I mean, it's a, you know, a, a huge mountain to climb. I mean, it's unlikely yeah. that they would build a, a team fr- from the ground up and have uh, instant success in Formula One. I mean, obviously, the, the best that they could hope for would to be, you know, maybe a middle of the pack kind of team. That I, I think that would be, you know, extremely auspicious and good start to uh a new team in, uh, in Formula One. Hey, Mark, before we go to another break, I've got it written down in my notes here, but I can't actually find anything more on that. But uh, Formula One wants to unveil a, what was it, an automobile display? Do you want me to fill us in on that? Yeah, so this is a, a pretty cool concept, actually. And I'm going to pull up the notes on this. So I think one of the things that we've discovered over the course of the last probably a year or two as Gen DTS has become more and more involved and more and more integrated into the Formula One community is that there's this really strong desire for people to have a better working knowledge of the technical side of the sport. And I think one of the things that's been really challenging for fans is that the teams in particular have typically been very, very secretive of what they're doing with their cars and the changes that being made. So oftentimes we'll only learn about a change that a team's made by to a car because somebody's photographed the car and then Bryson, a natural paradigm on Twitter, identifies it and shares with the world the fact that a team is running a new inlet or that they've modified their floor or a barge board or something like that. But in the spirit, in the spirit of making technical changes more accessible to the teams, Formula One and the FIA has come together with a new concept. And I think this is pretty cool. So what they've done is they've updated the sporting regulations Mm -hmm. and the sporting regulations now state that teams must now submit a document to the FIA. And I'm quoting here from planetf1.com. They must submit a document to the FIA no less than 23 hours before free practice one, which directly and explicitly names and briefly describes any aerodynamic or bodywork components and assemblies that were not used in the last race, but will be used that race weekend. So, hey, you go to a Grand Prix, you make a bunch of changes to your car. Now, before that car hits the track for free practice one at the next Grand Prix, you need to hand over a document to the FIA that says, here's exactly what we've changed. 
here's exactly why we've changed it. And then that presumably is going to be turned over to the fans and to the media. Now, the other part of this too, is that they are going to force the teams to make the car available outside of the garage before the free practice session. So they actually are going to say, hey, you need to document your changes and then you need to make the car available for 90 minutes hmm. prior to the session starting. And then finally, there will be a second session 30 minutes after qualifying when the race director will select five different teams, which must present one of their cars under park Ferme conditions like all of the other cars on the grid. So one, you need to provide a document listing all of the changes that you've made to your car since the last race. So aerodynamic and bodywork components, not necessarily internal engine or gearbox changes. You're going to need to make your car available outside of your garages for scrutineering by the media. And you're also going to need to potentially make your car available under park firm conditions for further scrutineering by the media and things like that. So it just brings a, a greater degree of transparency yeah. to the changes and the updates that teams are making. But it also satisfies this demand that apparently exists within the fan base to know more about what changes and tweaks are being made. Yeah, well, I mean, there there is a real desire for that uh, in the Formula One community. People just really just love that stuff and uh, can't get enough of it. But also, uh, I, I love how you put it, uh, that it's going to, you know, promote more transparency. I mean, hopefully we get away from things like flexi wings and all the the massive debates and controversies that we saw, especially last year, that, uh, you know, they're doing this and they're doing that and all these uh, different things. So I think it's a, a great move. Anyway, so, and I apologize. Oh, I think I ahead. said they need to make the car available for 90 minutes um, prior to the session. They need to make it available at least 90 minutes before free practice one starts. So I just correct myself. There, there. you go. Cool. Perfect. Okay. Time for another break. Break. When we come back, still a bunch of things to talk about. And let's uh, we'll start with William. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. All right, welcome back. And this is a story that I love. And uh, this uh, comes uh, or is uh, about, I guess, one of my, my favorite teams uh, growing up, and that's uh, Williams, who have been obviously uh, bottom feeders for way too uh, long. And, um, well, slowly but surely uh, turning it around. And I think that uh, th this new attitude, especially coming from a team principal and CEO, uh, Jos Capito, I think this is a, a breath of uh, fresh air. And I think this is just the attitude that uh, that this team needs or needs and uh, Yosta said uh, quote we don't accept to be last anymore end quote and uh, that they've moved on from being a family business to a well-structured engineering company and you know I, I don't want to throw shade at the Williamses I, I don't want to say anything bad about them I think that they did an amazing job starting this uh, team getting to the grid way back in 1978 being a force in Formula One for a long long time and slowly, you know, waning over over time into falling into the abyss, sadly, in more, more recent times. So, you know, it's uh, certainly been a long and painful descent uh, for them. But since they got the new um, ownership, um, the, the, the group uh, run by um, uh, Derelton Cap uh, Capital, slowly but surely they've turned it around. I have to admit the, the, the Williams, I think, is a, a great... Um, looking car. And uh, I, I'm really hoping that this year is going to be something uh, better for them. I think it's, I hope it's going to be different for them. But just hearing these sorts of comments coming from the higher ups in this team, I think just really sets the tone from top to bottom. And I, I really hope that uh, despite or in, you know, <laughs> 
well, maybe not in spite or despite. I'm hoping that what they do on the track is reflected uh, or, or or mirrors Yost's uh, uh, comments. I'm starting to lose my train of thought here. Sorry, it's getting a little bit late. But yeah, I hope that they mirror on the track what his comments off the track are, because I, I think this is what the this team needs. It's super unfortunate that anyone that's joined the sport as a member of the the fan community over the course of the last four or five years have have really known Williams as nothing more than than a bottom dweller. And I promise Sadly, you, yeah. and I, I promise you that has not always been the case. This is the team that joined the sport in 1977 until recently, until Dorlson stepped in. It was, as you describe, a family-run business. It was a family business. They've they've achieved nine constructors championships, seven drivers championships. They've scored 114 race wins in their history, 313 podiums, 128 pole positions, and 133 fastest laps but really for the better part of the last five or six years they've they've been nowhere to be seen and really in a lot of ways formula one just became too big of a business that an independent family-run business um could compete in anymore so it's unfortunate i think you and i will always have a soft spot for the williams family given how much they contributed to the sport over the course of those decades of course jv jack villeneuve uh the canadian won a driver's championship with the team in 1997 which is obviously a memory both you and i will hold fondly that was a very very cool moment for for both of us, but I feel like they're in a monumentally better position now than obviously they have been in any point in recent history. And I just feel like when Dalton went in, they didn't go in there in a lot of ways in the way that I maybe would have expected them to do. Like my assumption was that, Hey, a private equity firms buying an F1 team, like what's the deal here? Like they private equity teams or companies don't typically come in and add value to an organization and invest in that organization. Oftentimes they're looking for that quick buck. They're looking for that quick flip. They want to tear it down and sell the nuts and bolts. They've come in and they've invested a ton of money and they put some really great people into places. And really what Yost is saying here is like, Hey, we've officially made that transition. We are no longer a family-run business. We are a world-class engineering company, and we're ready to compete with the best of Formula One. And, and why not? They have that expertise. They have the history there. They, they they are doing so many things there, right? I mean, why not flex on that? And why not use that and yeah. come from a position of strength? So maybe they just needed um, somebody to come in that had a, a slightly different point of view and um, just needed that fresh energy. So I, I, I'm excited for them, and I, I really hope that this has uh, positive uh, reflections in, in reality. I, I really, really do because maybe I'm being partially nostalgic for you know growing up and how good they were way back in the day. But I, I just don't, I, I hate seeing certain teams struggle and uh, they're one of the McLaren was another and McLaren has obviously um, turned it around in a fairly short amount of time. And we'll see whether or not uh, Williams uh, can do the same. Now, um, McLaren CEO Zach Brown is happy to see these uh, big sponsorship uh, agreements uh, with uh, major companies. We saw Oracle sponsoring uh, Red Bull. You know, that's a deal that's said to, to be worth way over, well, north of 500 million bucks uh, for the next uh, couple of years. Was it three years? I think that deal is. And uh, then there's also, um, they uh, announced that deal with uh, Bybit, uh, which is going to bring them, what was it, another 150 or 200 million bucks, something like that. So it, it's interesting because we were talking about that earlier in the show with, uh, you know, what does Haas do now with this whole situation with their 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 title sponsor, Urakali, and the whole 
Russian thing and all these sanctions and whatnot. Let's just say for argument's purpose, for the purpose of this uh, discussion, that that partnership has to dissolve, right? And as you said earlier, what happens then to Haas? Because obviously, this is a small team that relies a lot on the sponsorship money. And if uh, they can't rely on that uh, from, you know, from from Urukali, where does that money come from? And I just can't help but wonder that if they were to lose that sponsorship, you know, if they weren't able to pick somebody up in the, you know, in this in this era now, I would have to say this is more about the team itself rather than the climate that the Formula One is uh, finds itself in, because it doesn't seem like there's any shortage of people wanting to sponsor Formula One teams and you know, the the other nine of them. So I have to ask that question. So who I, knows? I completely agree. And and the thought here too is when I was talking moments ago about the projected valuations of these Formula One teams, and people keep getting so angry at me when I say, "Hey, a Formula One team could be worth a billion dollars one day." Look, we have NBA teams worth northwards of six billion dollars. Is it so ridiculous to think that a Formula One team could be worth a hundred million dollars, or sorry, a billion dollars? It's it's not that far fetched, and then it's not far fetched because we start to see the sponsorship dollars that are being thrown at these teams. Like Oracle just signed up to commit almost a half billion dollars to the Red Bull team. They could buy a team based on recent precedents for half a billion dollars. Like the deal that was like Andretti and Sauber Alfa Romeo wasn't mm-hmm. half a billion dollars. That, you know, if I'm Haas, I agree with you that if they can't secure a sponsor, it's because of the leadership at that team. So I'm not talking about the folks working the social media accounts. I'm not talking about the people on the factory floor. I'm not talking about the sales team. I'm just talking about the senior leadership at that team, making the team potentially toxic to potential sponsors. And I also... Let's be fair, Haas, they were the ones that signed up for that deal with Rich Energy without doing their due diligence. <laughs> they signed up for the deal with your colleague. And I, I could never suggest that they could have predicted that this was coming, but there are certain risks when you sign up to make a um a, a Russian petrochemical company your title, your principal sponsor. There's certain risks there. But, but, but for, I would agree with you. To just jump Please. in for a second there, at least, uh, you know, one thing that Urakali has going for them, they're a real company that actually does something in the real world. I mean, yeah, rich energy. I mean, have you ever gone down to 7-Eleven or into the grocery store or the gas station and ever been able to buy a can of rich energies. I, I don't even know like, you know, like where I can get it. I mean, at least Urakali, despite all the other, you know, implications that come with it, they're a real company. They do real things. They do business in the real world. The other the, one, I mean, they're, I mean, the, the one thing you got to give rich energy is they're damn good at promoting themselves without actually doing anything in real life. So I, I or, or yeah. a very small operation at, at what you, I would think, right? You make a pretty good point here that is when the rich energy deal fell apart, which was an embarrassment for that team, an embarrassment for Formula One, your colleague may have actually been seen as the safe bet. Like this is a large, extraordinarily profitable company that we're going to be able to use to bankroll our operations for the next couple of years as we try to project ourselves into relevance within the sport. Like they may have seen them as the safe bet. Now, my argument should always have been that, look, you know what? there probably would have been safe money somewhere else and maybe there would have been less of it, but there could have been safe money somewhere else because now they're in a position where they've got to seek out and locate that sponsor. But I think based on what we're seeing and the number of companies that are being attracted to Formula One, unless there's something fundamentally wrong with that team, 
and I'm talking about things that you and I can't see on the surface, mm-hmm. uh, they should be able to find somebody, to be totally honest. Yeah, you, you would think so in this uh, day and age. Okay, now moving along to some of these uh, sort of quick stories we like to cover at the end of the show. Um, re- or Sorry, the uh, W Series reigning champion, Jamie Chadwick, will uh, be driving for Caitlyn Jenner's uh, Jenner Racing Team in 2022. And there was an interesting uh, article that was uh, posted on uh, jalopnik.com where they posited that is it um, is a third season in the W series a bit unnecessary for Jamie? And uh, you know, I I think there's something to it. I think she's outgrown it. She should be somewhere else. To be quite honest, not to detract yeah. from the W series, I think that they've done a great job and uh, they're doing a great job. I just think that she's a phenomenally talented driver. That uh, I, I think that you know. The, the way her career is trending up, I think she needs to, you know, to, to move up to the next level, but where and what that next level is, um, you know, is it DTM? Is it, uh, is it somewhere else? Who knows? Right. I just think that, uh, you know, she deserves a shot some somewhere else. I mean, l- let her go where her talent takes her, but I just don't know where those doors are going to open or even yeah, sadly, if they will o- open. Sorry, go ahead. Shout out. Yeah, no worries. A shout out to Elizabeth Blackstock, who's the individual that wrote that article for Jalopnik. But I couldn't agree more. The fact that she's coming back to defend her her double world championship in the double ser- W series is mm-hmm. is a disgrace. And, and it's not a disgrace to Jenna Racing or to the W series. It's just a, an indictment of all these other competitive open wheel racing series in the world that couldn't find a way to accommodate her. And let's be totally honest, Formula 3, Formula 2, drivers are paid drivers. Now, they may not be paying for those seats out of their pocket, but mm. they line up sponsors who fund those seats. Yep. The fact that in 2022, a double champion, a double W Series champion couldn't get the funding to find a ride for F3 or F2 is incredibly shocking and it's disappointment. And I think it's an indictment of the broader motorsports world, but yeah. it also speaks to the fact that W Series is still finding its feet within the greater global motorsports landscape in the sense that right now it's defined and its context is very much operating in isolation from the rest of the motorsports world in Mm -hmm. the sense that it's not functioning as a feeder series today and it needs to function as a feeder series being that if i am the champion of the w series i'm going to get a ride in f2 just like if i win in f3 i'm not going back to f3 i'm going to f2 and if i win the title in f2 i'm not going back i'm either going to formula one or i'm going to formula e or i'm going to find a ride somewhere else W Series needs to function as a ladder to get these talented young women into more competitive racing series. And it's incredibly disappointing that Jamie Chadwick is not going to get that opportunity here. You know, I, I mean, th- this is maybe small consolation, but uh, perhaps it's uh, it's something uh, nonetheless that even though maybe uh, she's not uh, getting the opportunities that uh, that you and I both uh, you know strongly believe that uh, she deserves, but uh, perhaps it's a, it's an indication that 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 some small steps are being made that people like you and I are sitting here you know not quite outraged but disappointed and uh, that that she's not getting the opportunity to 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 showcase her talents or or take her talents uh, talents to the next level so perhaps you know, not that we're the first ones, but maybe there's th- this conversation is being had somewhere else. And it's just sort of like the first domino or that first roll of the snowball. And we'll, we'll see where it goes. But certainly, I mean, she's a phenomenal driver. I'd love to see where she can uh, take her career from here. Hopefully up, hopefully up. Okay, so uh, Aston Martin has explained why they didn't uh, buy Mercedes uh, front uh, suspension. You want to take this one? Yeah, it's 
it kind of goes back to something we've talked about over the course of the last couple of weeks, which is all of the different components in an F1 car are classified. Some of them are parts that you have to build yourself. Some of them are parts that you have to buy from an FAI approved vendor. Some of them are transferable, meaning that you can buy them from another team. We saw in 2020 that, uh, that the pink Mercedes, the racing point car pre Aston Martin was heavily, heavily reliant on buying transferable parts from Mercedes and copying, liberally copying a lot of the other parts based on photographs. Uh, Aston Martin in the spirit of becoming more and more independent has opted to only buy two transferable components from the Mercedes team. So obviously the power unit slash gearbox yeah. and the rear suspension. They've bought the rear suspension because, and th there's some merit here. They believe that the rear suspension and the gearbox, which is posited over the rear assembly, uh, kind of need to function in, in, in tandem. But they made the decision not to buy the front suspension from, from Mercedes, which is a transferable component. They could have done it, but they've decided to build their front suspension, which is kind of cool. And it also speaks to the fact that uh, Lord Stroll's master plan of building out this grand campus and factory at Silverstone is starting to pay dividends here. He doesn't want to be a team that has to buy components from other teams unless absolutely necessary. We heard some hints last week that they might be looking to kind of sniff out the possibility of building their own power unit for 2026. Mm. But it's also exciting that they're reducing their dependence on Mercedes as a supplier of parts for their team. So sure, they're going to use the power unit. They're going to use the gearbox. They're going to use that rear suspension because they didn't have the time to build one. But they're not going to rely on Mercedes to supply the front suspension, which is a transferable component, meaning that they could have bought it from Mercedes if they wanted to. So it just speaks to their independence and their newfound capabilities as they continue to expand their factory and their headcount. You know, it is interesting, too. I mean, just that mindset. I mean, uh, I often wonder what goes through the, you know, like what the thought process of very, very successful people like Lawrence Stroll is. And I, I think that maybe this is his effect, uh, sort of like a, a spinoff effect from the, the way that he operates and he thinks and he does his business that, you know, in order to be the best, you have to beat the best. And I mean, you know, like, why are we going to buy this component from uh, Mercedes when we want to be world winning world championships in within five Five years, I think, is the, uh, the the timeline that he put on it. So, I mean, he's putting an awful lot of faith in 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 the people that he's brought in to uh, to to build and run this team, right? So, I, I think that uh, it's a, it's a confidence thing, and I don't think it's like a reckless move on his part. I, I think that people in Lawrence's position, like the you know, they don't take risks; they mitigate risks. They you know, they what they do is um, it, it's based on you know education and you know there, there's you, you you can never completely remove risk from a situation but you try and you know set yourself up that okay you might stumble along the way but ultimately you're going to be successful and i think that's uh, what he's doing uh, with, with his team so going to be fun to watch i mean you know as everybody that's been listening to this show for a while will know that we were really on board we were all team aston martin last year and they sadly let us down you and i Still not quite over it, but uh, hoping that uh, this year they, uh, they they come back and uh, and do us proud. Anyways, one final one. I guess I should lump this one uh, together, the previous story. But um, Zach Brown from um, McLaren says that uh, he predicts what's going to be a successful decade 
for Formula One with all the influx of uh, different sponsors and and things like that. I mean, there's certainly no shortage of them, especially on the McLaren. I mean, that's uh, really good. I, you know, talking about sponsors, I really hope that they go back to that really, really sexy golf livery that they had on the uh, the McLaren at uh, at Monaco last year. That was just uh, fantastic. Anyways, anything else tonight, sir? Or is it is it time to yeah. shut it down? It's It's been a long one. And I can't believe both of us still have voices considering we've been both under the weather the last week or so. Shout out to a couple of... Uh motorsports superstars so uh again we're not a big nascar show i think we've committed a couple of times that we want to learn a little bit more about it last weekend was the daytona 500 congratulations to austin Sindrick for winning the daytona 500 he did a phenomenal job congratulations to jack villeneuve not only did the almost 60 year old canadian driver qualify for the daytona 500 and i don't know that he's actually almost 60 i think he's in his 50s i was but just not gonna only say geez you qualify, don't <laughs> not only did he qualify he finished 22nd scoring 15 points and That's also awesome. congratulations to canadian amber balkin for finishing 16th in the support series, the Lucas Oil 200, an up-and-coming superstar in the world of stock car racing, and also somebody that we're hoping to get on the show for an interview in the next couple of months when her availability opens up. So congratulations to everyone in the world of stock car for a very successful Daytona 500 weekend. You know, uh, that's one of those things, you know, whenever I hear Daytona 500, and, uh, you know, that's just one of those... You know, it should be something I watch more because that that is almost like appointment TV. But you know, when when I'm so invested in uh, NFL, I'm so invested in soccer, so invested in Formula One, and just invested in my own, you know, in my family and my own life and stuff like that. It just it makes it difficult, especially when having like a job, you know, because I have to go out and yeah. <laughs> you know make a living. Yep. That uh, sadly there isn't enough time uh. in the in the week to. Uh, to do some of these things but uh, yeah no great and good for Jacques after uh, all those uh, years to, to come back what you said he was uh, 22nd after all that and I was going to say if he was you know almost 60 then uh, I was just about to ready to throw the headphones across the room and go upstairs because then I'd be just, that, that'd be official I'm feeling way too old well I wouldn't actually be feeling old I'd actually really be old at that point if <laughs> Jacques was at 60 so don't google it don't tell me what it is I'm, I'm uh, trying to find it right now <laughs> you're not, you're not going to let me uh, uh, go uh, get out of the studio tonight without letting so me know. I was way off. He's only 50. What was I thinking? He's only 50. The 1997 uh, Formula <laughs> One World Champion, 1995 IndyCar Champion. Oh, God. I, I was old. I was feeling old when I said Michael Andretti was 59. I thought if, if Jacques is pushing 60, then boy, it's, it's, it's time to get out of here for a night. Anyhow, on that note, time to wrap it up. Mark, thank you as always uh, for, for joining. It's always good to, to sit down and talk Formula One with you. Thanks for everybody watching on the live, uh, live stream. Of course, check out Bryson. Follow him on Twitter at Natural Paradigm. See what he's got uh, going on there. Join his Discord server, which we'll try and link to in, this, in, in the show notes. And that's it. On behalf of myself and Mr. Mark Hamilton, thank you for listening to the show. Get in touch via Twitter at ScuderiaF1Pod. Send us an email at ScuderiaF1Pod at gmail.com. That's it. That's a wrap. Have a great, great weekend. And bye for now.